We thank you that as we face 2016, we can know that you are the cornerstone. You are the Lord of all. Father, everyone here has have, have different anticipation of what's happening and what's going to happen in 2016. Personally, Lord, as a nation, as a city, as a church, all of the things that we wonder about. And I just thank and praise you that you are the cornerstone. You are the Lord. No matter what storm we go through and no matter where we are personally, we acknowledge that you, Jesus, our Lord of all. And I pray that you'll build our faith and confidence as we focus on you, Jesus, the Lord of all. I pray now, Lord, as we have, we've worshiped you and we've, we've come into your presence with, with openness and of heart to, to praise you and worship you, that you would transform us, that you would now take the living word of God and that you would change our lives. Because when we come into contact with you, the supernatural happens. And so build our faith and expectancy for something supernatural to happen in our lives today. Change us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Politically incorrect, and its opposite, politically correct, are relatively recent terms. The phrase politically correct has come to describe proper attitudes, correct thinking, taking care not to offend any particular individual group or belief system based on their ethnicity, their beliefs, their religion, their politics, their values, or gender. How we speak of or act towards or treat people who are different than we are. Politically correct, easy for me to say, Politically correct includes those, how those differences appear, not only in person, but in print media, on television, satirical sitcoms, reality shows, in movies, or on websites on the internet. Politically correct means we treat all ideas, groups, and beliefs with equal respect. We don't poke fun or make jokes or even express disagreement without validating someone else's opinion. Of course, the irony of being politically correct is that to be totally politically correct, one must profess nearly a neutral value or opinion about everything. Its counterpart, politically incorrect, offends everybody equally. Nothing is sacred, everything and everyone is a target, whether you're Republican, Libertarian, Democrat, Conservative, Liberal, man or woman, everyone. And in today's politically charged atmosphere, a person like Candidate Donald Trump represents the epitome of politically incorrect, which is why some people love him, others not so much. Politically correct is to offend the sensibilities of the norm, to contradict the commonly held values or beliefs, to go outside the box, or to, to challenge the establishment. It is a way to agitate for change. Today we're going to look at politically incorrect. As we continue our series, Love Story in a World at War, we're going to look at an event in the life of Jesus. In that day and ours, Jesus really could be defined as politically incorrect. What he did and said totally offended the religious culture of that day. But change was needed, and I want us to see what we can learn from this story about Jesus. 
I'd like to invite you to turn to, to Luke, the fifth chapter. If you're looking for it in the Bible, in, in the rack in front of you, it's on page 836. Page 836. It's Luke chapter 5, starting with verse 27. Luke 5, starting with verse 27. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him, and Levi got up and left everything and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. They said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. Jesus answered, can you make the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days they will fast. He told them this parable. No one tears a patch from a new garment and sews it on an old one. If he does, he will have torn the new garment and the patch from the, old, from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins. The wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine wants the new, for he says the old is better. Jesus constantly challenged the establishment. This is no exception. His actions here were what we would really call politically incorrect. And I want us to look today at five politically incorrect actions Jesus took, and probably the same actions that we should take. The first action he took was Jesus recruited the wrong people. Wrong quote-unquote. He recruited a guy named Levi. Levi was also called Matthew, and he was a tax collector. Of course, the question is, what's wrong with a tax collector? I have nothing personally against tax collectors. In fact, Jan Bradison, who's part of our congregation, is a retired IRS worker. In our, in our country today, outside some nefarious IRS persons who targeted certain groups of people, tax collection is governed by law, and if you follow the laws, you have nothing to fear. However, Matthew... Matthew worked as a tax collector for the Roman government. Tax collectors were Jewish citizens under contract to the Roman government. They collected taxes from their fellow Jews and passed them on to the Romans, minus commission. It's that commission. And the tax collectors had a reputation for enriching themselves with fat commissions at the expense of their fellow countrymen. That was not correct. They did not act politically correct and were despised by the Jews as corrupt, evil men. No one would associate or have anything to do with a tax collector. To do so was politically incorrect. It was unacceptable. So what does Jesus do? What does Jesus do? He recruits one of them for his leadership team. Unbelievable. Why did Jesus do that? Did he, did he want Matthew's money? No, that's too cynical. Matthew left everything to follow Jesus, and it carried high risks. Fishermen, some of the disciples are fishermen, and they can always go back to fishing, but once you left tax collecting, you were finished. It was over. He turned his back on tax collecting for good. 
But why did Jesus recruit a corrupt scumbag like Matthew? Jesus saw what Matthew was, but he also saw what Matthew could become. Jesus saw potential. See, Jesus does that. He looks at us with all our faults and problems and our, our sins, the wrong things we've done, and, and he sees potential. See, we did not choose God. God chose us. Why did he do that? Because Jesus, God, is politically incorrect. He doesn't wait for perfection. He doesn't wait for us to have our lives all together. He doesn't demand we clean up our lives ahead of time. He doesn't demand that we earn his trust or even change our lives first. Jesus looks past all of that and sees what we with God's lives can become. And he says to you and to me, he said, follow me. I'm sure most of you know the name Michael Jordan from the basketball world. When Michael Jordan was a sophomore in high school, just a sophomore in high school, he tried out for the basketball team and he was cut. He was cut. He wasn't good enough to play basketball on the team. The next year, he tried out again. And the coach could have said, you know, I cut you last year. You weren't good enough then. I'm not going to give you a shot this year. But he did give him a chance because he saw potential. And out of that decision came the greatest basketball player this world has ever known. In the same way, God looks at you and me. And he says, you know, you've been cut before. You didn't measure up. But I see potential. I see potential greatness in you. Follow me. Join my team. It's politically incorrect. Jesus recruited the wrong people. Secondly, Jesus accepted and befriended the wrong people. Matthew, this scumbag, tax collector, was so excited about his decision to follow Jesus that he threw a party for all of his tax collector friends and others. Now, the Pharisees and religious people of that day were separatists. They thought it was their duty to stay away from people like Matthew. It was politically incorrect. In fact, to sit down and eat with someone was to demonstrate acceptance and friendship. And the religious people were incensed. This was not acceptable if you were a religious person of that day. It was not politically correct. They were separatists. Jesus was inclusive. Now, there are a lot of people today who feel they're unworthy to God. Say, I'm not worthy to God. Maybe you're here today and feel like Matthew and others did. An outsider, sinners, despised, never quite fit in. That's exactly who Jesus came to befriend and accept and to establish relationship. Every one of us. And no matter what your past, your background, your mistakes, your sins, Jesus came to establish a relationship with you. Jesus demonstrated God's passion for people who felt left out, forgotten, and unworthy. Now, there are many here that chose to follow Jesus a long time ago. And the question is, as followers of Jesus, do we do the same thing? Who are the unworthy or the untouchables in our mind today? Who are the individuals that religious people try to separate from, people we consider unworthy? In 2006... Judy and I took a team to Slovakia over in Europe, made up of a music group and a hip-hop dance team. And we did something that was a little politically incorrect for church groups, a Christian group. We performed concerts doing music and hip-hop dance in the public square, and we did it in some restaurants and some 
outdoor pubs and some bars. And I will never forget in one concert, it was an outdoor, it was an outdoor pub, and one tall, burly Slovak was so engaged in the concert performance that he left the tables where they were sitting, and he started to dance with our hip-hop dancers. It was quite comical. He, he didn't have the hip-hop part down, but he could move. And he was obviously engaged in what we were doing. We found out he was well-known as the life of the party no matter where it was in town. He also had kind of a negative reputation. He wasn't one of those people you'd want to invite to your house, probably. Well, as with all our concerts, we couldn't evaluate our spiritual impact immediately, but at the end of the 10 days of concerts, we held one final concert in an auditorium where the hip-hop team danced, joined by 30 high school students that came from all over the area to participate in the, in the hip-hop dance clinic. They came from as far away as the Czech Republic. And we did this concert with music and hip-hop dance at the end, and one thing I noticed immediately as we went out there, I saw this big, burly, wild, giant Slovak man, the life of every party. Not only did he come, but he brought his entire family. It was at the end of this concert that our sponsoring missionary shared the good news of Jesus Christ with an invitation for all of them to follow Jesus. Now, I don't know exactly what happened in this man's head. I don't know what happened in his heart. But one thing I know, we loved him and his family. We accepted him where they were, in the local bar, and we earned the right to tell him about Jesus, the one who came to establish relationship with him. Politically incorrect? Probably. But we accepted the wrong people in the wrong place. The question is, am I advocating bar evangelism? No. But am I advocating meeting people where they are, where they live, where they associate? Do we associate with the tax collectors and sinners, as we call them? How else are people to find out about Jesus unless we who follow Jesus engage in relationship with them? We hesitate to associate with some. But let me tell you something. One thing that kind of helped me was realizing that we're all in the same boat. No matter where we are, we're in the same boat. In Romans 3, Paul is writing, writing to a people who are trying to impress God. And, and he says in Romans 3, 9, and 10, are we any better? Not at all. He says there's no one righteous, not even one. Romans 3.23, later in the chapter, he says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. One of the things that helps us understand is how we all fall short. These people are trying to impress God with their heritage, their pedigree. They're trying to gain acceptance by what they do. But God's standard is absolute perfection. If we're going to actually be in right relationship with God, we have to be perfect. Okay, perfect. Now, some may reach 95% of perfection. They're really good. Some only 25%. Some 83%. Other 37%. And we really feel good if we're more perfect or closer to perfect or a higher percentage of, of perfection than other people. They're not as good as we are. But falling short, the reason he said all have sinned and fall short, it means all of us have fallen short. In other words, it's like trying to jump over a jump over a chasm or a waterfall, and, and let's say, let's say um, 
One person makes it 95% over, okay? They almost made it over the waterfall. One person made it 37%, one, one person 52%. But everybody fell short and everybody fell in the river. The trouble with religious people is they think that because they made it further, they're better than other people, even though they only made it into the river just like everybody else. The people in our story, their problem is they don't see their need. They didn't see that they needed Jesus. They didn't see that Jesus came to those who saw their need. All had needs of God, but Jesus came to those who knew they fell short. All are floating down the same river, drowning. It doesn't matter if I made it further across than you, I'm still in the river drowning. And Jesus came to offer that saving to every one of us. And when we begin to see that we're all in the same boat, we've all fallen short, then we begin to understand that we're all equal in the eyes of God. But only those who know they're drowning accept the offer to help. Number three, Jesus' mission was to the wrong people. Wrong people. Verse 31, Jesus answered them and said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You would think that the Son of God would come to the righteous and really good people. No, he didn't. He came to the sick and the sinners. The question always is, who is the church for? This is a question we say, what, what, what do we exist for? What is the church for? And I'm not talking about just the building and, and facility and all those things. We're, we're talking about the church in general. The church is the body of Christ. It's, it's a group of people that worship Jesus and elevate him. Who is the church for? Who is the church for? It's also, it's for the people in the church. It's also for unchurched, people who haven't been to church. Or they're not part of the church. It's for the sick. Those whose lives have been devastated by a sickness called sin, a disease. See, the church exists for those that are not yet here. Sometimes we think, oh, this is great for me and all our group. But the church exists not only for those inside, it especially exists for those that are not here. That's why the commission that we have is to go make disciples of all people. We're called to go out there. And that message can be politically incorrect because we like to think it's for me and it's about me and about my needs. The interesting thing is, until we see our need, our sickness, Jesus can't do anything about it. Jesus came to call the sick, to call not to righteous but sinners to repentance. And the great irony here, this is the biggest irony here, he said, I'm not here to call the righteous and, and the relig religious people thought they were the righteous. The irony is that the religious leaders of the day had deep-seated pride and arrogance. A sin of pride, they didn't see it. He wanted to reach them as well, but if they didn't see their need, they weren't going to really, uh, react or respond. Jesus came to call the sinners to repentance. Repentance means to give it up, to turn around. It's a 180-degree change of direction. Some people think, Jesus calls us to give up stuff because he doesn't want us to have any more fun. It's like God is up there somewhere and he says, find out what they're doing on earth and make them stop. Find out what they're doing for fun and make them stop. Repent, go to church, quit smiling, laughing, and having fun, get serious. No, Jesus calls us to repent because he knows the devastating effects of sin in our lives. Selfishness, anger, 
substance abuse, adultery, which wrecks marriages and families, pornography, which destroys marriage relationships, gossip, which destroys reputations and lives. Gossip can destroy a church. Jesus calls us to repentance, to give up our sin, not to destroy our fun, but to bring us to fun. It's called the abundant life. Sin destroys lives. Repentance is the first step towards restoration and joy. So Jesus' mission and our mission is to call people to repentance, tell them about the alternatives to reach the wrong people. That's our mission. Jesus was politically incorrect. We should be too. Number four, Jesus brought celebration instead of obligation. Celebration instead of obligation. Let me unpack this a little bit. Verses 33 and 34. He says, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. Yours go on eating and drinking. Jesus answered, can you make the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days they will fast. What does this mean? The Pharisees and the religious people made a big deal of fasting and praying. And, and what they would do is they'd make sure everybody knew they were fasting and praying. So they would fast and do things so people knew because they wanted to demonstrate how spiritual they were, how committed they were to, to their religion or to their God. And so they did things externally, but it was out of obligation, not celebration. And does Jesus say don't fast and pray? No. He said, he didn't say he said there will come a time. In fact, he predicts his own death when he says the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them by force. One of many predictions that Jesus made about his death, the fact that he was going to be killed. But he said now the bridegroom is here. It's time to celebrate. Time to celebrate. And, and, and some people think that we need to be serious all the time. The writers of Ecclesiastes in, four, in chapter 4, uh, verse 4 says, there is a time to weep. There's a time to laugh, there's a time to mourn, there's a time to dance. And, and basically, there is a time for all things, but this is a shot at religious people who elevated religious obligations and religious duties. The old I have to attitude. Some people think that our faith is all about I have to, it's all obligation. Now, I, I told my daughter, go clean your room. Not recently, she's, she's 29 and 32, so, but... I told my daughter once, go clean your room. Now, she's got two responses. She can say, do I have to? Or she can say, do I get to? How many of you have said last time you've asked, your parents asked you to do something and said, do I get to? Anybody? I didn't. Uh, almost. Okay. One is obligation. One is celebration. I have to or I get to. I have to is obligation. I get to is freedom. I have to is law. I get to is grace. How many of you remember the story, you know the story of Tom Sawyer when he was told to paint the fence? Paint the fence, everybody remember? Tom Sawyer painting the fence, okay. Tom Sawyer was told he had to paint the fence. He didn't want to paint the fence. So his friends came along and asked him if they could help him paint the fence. And his answer was, well, you know, it's not every day you get to paint a fence. They lined up to paint the fence because now they got to paint the fence. Sometimes it's just attitude. I have to go to church. I get to go to church. I have to tithe. I get to tithe. I have to obey God. I have to obey my parents. I have to do this. I have, or I get to. I get to. Obligation has to do with religious duties. Celebration has to do with opportunities. 
Jesus was here and he said, this is a wedding, it's not a funeral yet. Someday Jesus would die and then he said, the time will come for fasting, praying, and mourning. But now it's celebration. Jesus is alive. Jesus is present. And I know it may seem politically incorrect to have fun in church or to smile or to laugh or enjoy yourself of all things. Some people think that's irreverent. There's a Catholic saint who said that joy is the surest sign of the presence of God. Jesus came to being, bring good news. Yeah, there's pain, there's suffering, but the hallmark of our faith is joy. And C.S. Lewis, um, the, in his book Surprised by Joy, describes himself as a, as a very reluctant convert. If you ever read, want to read a great book, Surprised by Joy by C.S. Lewis, he said he was dragged into becoming a Christian by his heels, kicking and screaming. Some of you may have been in that place. Maybe you're there right now. And he likens it to bracing yourself to dive into a cold mountain stream and then finding it delightful. He said it was joyous. It was amazing. People hesitate. Don't, I don't want to follow Jesus. I don't, okay, I will. And then they discover the joy and the celebration. That there's, the obligation is not there. It's the joy and celebration. He suggested that while discipleship might cost your life, the presence of God is cause for celebration, to celebrate. The final politically correct action of Jesus is, number five, Jesus brought change. Jesus brought change. This is kind of an interesting study on these la the last two, 36 through 39. Jesus gives two illustrations of change. One is a garment. He said it's foolish to mutilate a new garment by tearing a piece from it to repair the old garment. It won't match. And in Mark, it says the new will shrink and pull the old garment to pieces. Now, uh, they didn't have blue jeans back then, so that, blue jeans don't apply to this. But this is the way it was back then. Jesus shows how foolish it is to try to adapt the new way of life he brought to this old religion of the Pharisees and teachers. It doesn't fit. It will rip. It will destroy. The old is obsolete. The old ideas and old traditions. Jesus brings something new. Question. Have you, have you ever hung on to something in your past? Have you ever hung on to something in your past that became more important than your future? There's something in your past you hung on to and that's more important than your future or it's more important than your present. Maybe in a past incident, a past hurt, a past memory, something in your past. Or have you valued a past memory of God more than your present experience with him? I hope we all have great past memories. And those of you that walked with God for a long time, I hope you have great past memories of God. But what's happening in the now? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But our faith is dynamic, not static. Our faith must be in the now. Present relationship with God, not just fond memories of him, past tense. For the Pharisees, these religious people here, it was static. It was, Jesus says it's dynamic, it's supposed to be changing and growing. Some people never get past a certain point in their spiritual journey. They never move forward. They never change, they never progress, they never grow. We say, I'm spiritual enough. I'm spiritual enough. Don't disturb my peace. Leave me alone. I like my comfort zone. I'm comfortable. And then we live in our comfort foods of church get-togethers, small groups, Sunday school classes, fellowship times, 
and have a predictable life. Jesus says enough, it's time to change. It's time to change. Jesus challenged their experience of God and may challenge ours. It's not politically correct, but it is correct. And you know, we experience so much change in this world. Change is rapid and it's accelerating. And some people say, I just want one place where there's no change. And they want that to be the church. The problem is, it's not about us. It's about them. It's about people who don't know Jesus. And if we stay in this, this myopic place of no change, and it's like a time warp, people walk in and go, what century are these people from? Instead of saying, they are in the same world I'm in. They're experiencing the same things. They speak the same language. They, they watch the same television programs. They understand what's going on in the world. They're, they don't have the head buried in the sand. They understand what's going on because they too change and they understand what's changing because we must change. We must stay relevant to people in our world or they'll come in and assume that God is irrelevant. It's not politically correct, but it's correct. The second illustration he uses is a wineskin. Now, we don't see wine in wineskins today. At least I haven't seen one for a long time. What did Jesus mean by when he was talking about wine and wineskins? In New Testament times, they put new wine, or they'd take the, the grape juice, and they put it into new leather bottles. They were elastic and stretchy, and as the juice fermented, the bottles would stretch with it. If you put new wine into old wineskins, the fermenting process would burst the old, stiff wineskins. Now, this illustration has nothing to do with chronological age. The older we get, I know, the more we look and feel like old wineskins, but that's not what we're talking about here, okay? Our experience with God may be that old wineskin. In other words, we cannot contain or accommodate new things that God wants to teach us or accomplish us in our old wineskin. God is an innovator. He, we can't box him in. And the new wine is Jesus Christ and his work through the Holy Spirit. And he's moving and stretching us like the fermentation process and is the moving and dynamic tumult inside of us. And when God's Spirit moves inside of us, we move from comfortable, in control, predictable, and usual to uncomfortable, out of control, unpredictable, and unusual. Because God makes all things new. God calls us, each one of us, to present him with a fresh wineskin of flexibility every new day and in every new situation. We can't keep our old wineskin. We cannot depend on previous experience. God is doing new things. And so the prayer that I ask you to have is God make me a new wineskin today and every day. Because God wants to take our life out of the comfort zone, out of the rut, and get us moving. It's a process. It's a new creation that begins and never stops. God is forever new. That applies to our personal lives. It applies to our family lives. And it applies to our church, our church life. And change is uncomfortable. Change is uncomfortable. But if we don't change, we'll never grow. We'll never adapt. We'll never be able to allow the, the fermentation process, the move of the Holy Spirit of God, to move in our church to change us and to make us something new continually. This doesn't mean we forsake timeless truth. But God, the Holy Spirit, takes timeless truths, 
and changes us. In verse 39, we find the Pharisees wanted to stay with the old, but Jesus said, no. So where are you today? Where's your family? Where is our church? Are you ready for change? Are you ready to be politically incorrect? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you give us real-life illustrations of what you wanted to do in the lives of your disciples. You chose people that we thought, wow, I can't believe you chose him. I pray that we will lose our judgmentalism. I pray that we would understand in a new way that you make choices of people and you call on us to accept people. I pray for those here this morning, Lord, who feel as if they may be like that Matthew guy that really didn't have his act together. But you chose him because you saw potential. And I pray that we as a church, that have, those of us that have been in this church for a long time, would also look around and say, who, who do we need to accept? Who are you calling us to reach? What kind of changes are you calling us to make individually or as a church? It's our desire to be everything that you've called us to be. And I pray today, Lord Jesus, that you would strengthen us to become that. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Let's stand, shall we? As we enter 2016, I know that there are some of you that have challenges. And what we want to do is take just a minute. At, once we're dismissed, I'm going to invite, ask if Brent and Lindsay would stand over here. If Josh, another one of our leadership team board members, together with Loanne, would come and stand over here. If you have something you want to pray for, it may be something, a need you have, or maybe somebody in your family, some, one of your friends, one of your school classmates, whatever. We believe in answered prayer. And so if you want to pray with one of our leadership team, we want to invite you to come uh, as we're dismissed. To him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages now and forevermore. Amen. You're dismissed.